several things tonight. Um, This 10 practical rules for biblical interpretation, this sheet is one that we are going to uh, look at over several weeks. Uh, We might get through number one tonight. So um, these are things that we're going to be working on over time. But first, I want you to take out the one that has uh, Philemon on it again. We're going to look back at this. Uh, This book, all 25 verses of it, Um, if you recall, if you were here two weeks ago, we looked at trying to find uh, specific things in this text to help us uh, in our biblical interpretation. So who can uh, remind us what those things were that we were looking for? There were uh, four main items that we were uh, seeking to understand. What were they? Okay. Okay. So information about the author. What else? Sagan. Okay, the purpose of writing. Why? What were? Uh, what were some of the reasons that we could identify for what the why the author was writing this book? What else? Okay, so information about the recipients. One more thing. It was purpose and occasion. Right, the occasion of writing. Uh, So those were some easy, practical things that we can look at the text and start to break down and figure out exactly what's going on. Um, The next thing that we should do is as we read through the text, especially a smaller portion of text, and um, on some levels, if you want to do a big study of a book of the Bible, say you take the book of Philippians, um, if I... uh, Just to give you an example, if I'm going to study the book of Philippians, lead a Bible study, preach through the book, whatever, um, I'm going to do all of this. I'm going to walk through all of these things through through the entire book up front. I want to outline the book, uh, have a breakdown of each chapter, uh, each section. Um, I want to figure out who the author is, who they're writing to, why they're writing certain sections in certain ways. All of this is part of... Uh, the journey in figuring out exactly what's going on. So, um, but you can take this and do it on a more of a micro level to where um, you start to uh, look at maybe just a section of Scripture. Maybe you look at 10 verses at a time. We can do all of these things within those 10 verses. That's why we chose Philemon. It's only 25. So the next step that I want to look at is um, if you take that sheet, we will uh, read through it again. And I want us now to make some divisions in the text. And by that, um, notice that all of your text is in one big block. It's one lump. Um, if you look in your Bibles, of course, they make some divisions for you. They, make, uh, they put um, those uh, headers in there the, an outline form. Those are not part of the inspired text. Those are to help you in your reading and your study. Um, so what the... Uh, what the text would have looked like on the scrolls essentially is uh, just writing like this. It's not divided out by chapter and verse. It's not divided out with uh, with headings and cross-references and footnotes and all of that. It's just text. Um, I did leave the verse numbers in there to help us as we move along. So we're going to make the divisions tonight. Um, so this is what kind of literature... The book of Philemon is a what? A letter. It's an epistle. Okay? So, um, 
most people, <laughs> when they write letters, they're not just writing page after page after page without any breaks in it, right? I've probably gotten a few of those letters, but for the most part, there is some uh, structure to them. And we're going to follow regular uh, English structure and grammar rules as we look at this. So uh, we're going to break out uh, paragraphs. Now, I've helped you a little bit uh, here out on the side and given you five boxes to write in. Uh, so the assumption being that we're going to break it out into five different sections. Um, so each of those boxes is there for you to give a quick one sentence, maybe a few word uh, summary of what those verses in that section are about. That's what those boxes are for. Um, so let's read through the letter once again, and, uh, and then we'll go back and we will look at how this divides out. So who would like to read uh, these verses for us? Okay, thank you very much. All right. Um, so I want to look at this now and uh, try to make some divisions here. Where, uh, where does the focus change? So the very same way that we would write something when we make a new paragraph. Um, when we go to uh, start a new, why do we make new paragraphs? Okay, so there's a bit of a subject change, right? There's a bit of an idea change. Um, that we need to uh, we need to tell the reader something else is coming up now. So, uh, where do you see our first division? Yep. Okay. Between verses three and four. Why? What do we What do we go from into? Okay. It's a greeting, right? So. We know the structure of our letters, uh, probably most of our emails, they all begin with a greeting, right? Dear Russ, I hope you are well today. I uh, hope your family's well. I've prayed for you, yada, 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 period. Start a new line, right? Okay, so this is common uh, in our writing. It also is in Greek letters. So we see the greeting at the beginning. Paul is identifying himself, who's writing it, uh, and he is given his, uh, this is a common greeting in Greek literature. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we break between verses 3 and 4. So out on the side, we can summarize this uh, very simply by saying uh, Paul's greeting to Philemon and the church. That's, uh, that's what we have in the first three verses. And Bethany already identified our next uh, break, and that is in between verses 7 and 8. So what is going on in verses 4 through 7? Okay, he's expressing a specific love for Philemon. What did you have, Jenny? Okay, he's expressing thankfulness. Right, how, how is he doing that? He says, I thank my God. So what do we call that? Praise, it's a, it's a prayer, right? So we see Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for Philemon in these verses. He's recording in his writing a specific prayer that he is offering to the Lord. I am thanking God for you, for your life, for your friendship, for your fellowship, for what the Lord is doing in your life. I thank God for you. 
So this is Paul's prayer of thanksgiving for Philemon. So the next section begins in verse 8. How far do we go with that one? Okay, I've got one that says through 14. What else? I think someone said 16. Up to 18? Between 17 and 18? Okay. Any other ideas? Okay. Now, when we do this, this is one of the few things that as we look at biblical interpretation, there's no, uh, there's no exact, this is right, this is wrong, because we're making these divisions for us. Um, but remember, we're trying to group these in uh, subject form. So, but you'll look at different Bible translations, even in English, and see that they do this a bit differently. So there will be some subjectivity here. I make the break between verses 17 and 18. What is going on in this section? Maybe that will help you uh, as we define this a little bit. What's going on in this section from verse 8 through 17? Okay, he's making a specific request. Okay, good. This is the heart of the letter, right? This is the middle section of the letter. This is the largest section. He is explaining, uh, he's making his request and explaining, why am I writing to you? Here's the heart of it. I've opened this up. I've greeted you. I've offered my prayer for you. And now I'm telling you, why are you receiving a letter from me? Why did I take time to write this? So this is Paul's appeal to Philemon, which is what? What is he appealing to him to do? Heather? Okay. To, right, to, to receive Onesimus as a brother. That's his appeal. This is Paul's appeal to Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother. Uh, so that's a good summary statement of this whole section. All right, two more. Where do you see the next break after verse uh, 17? Beginning with verse 18 on to what? Between 21 and 22, what else? Any other ideas? Okay, 22, 23. Okay. All right. I would make it somewhere in there between either 21 and 22 or 22 and 23, probably the latter. Uh, because we see here what? What is he giving, what is he giving Philemon now? Okay, there's a bit of recommendation. He's also giving him some very specific instruction, right? He's charging him to do something, right? Prepare a guest room for me. He's not really asking him to. (laughs) He's saying, uh, do this for me. Um, So we have Paul's further instruction for Philemon, and he gives a specific confidence in him too, right? Uh, He is... uh, he is confident that because of his obedience to the Lord in verse 22, uh, that, 
that you will do what I am asking you to do, essentially. Uh, I know because of your faith that you're going to do what I ask. So this is Paul's further instruction for and confidence in Philemon. And then what does he end with? Okay, what he's it's a specific closing. Um, most uh, Greek letters are going to end with a benediction. In fact, most of the benedictions we do on Sunday mornings come from the end of these letters. Um, so, uh, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That is a benediction, uh, closing. Um, and he is, uh, and you'll see this at the end of almost all of Paul's letters as well. Greetings being sent by other believers who are in his area. Um, and so just uh, for reference, when we have guest preachers or pastors from other churches come and they say we bring greetings from whatever church they're part of, that's what we're, that's what we're doing. We're offering a greeting from fellow believers, from our brothers and sisters who are not uh, with us at the time. So uh, a very, very simple way that we can break down the whole uh, letter of Philemon. This is a helpful practice to get into as you study through the books of the Bible. I would encourage, now I know some of you do Bible reading plans and all that. That's great, and I uh, don't want to discourage that. I think that's a great thing. Um, But I would encourage you that once you get through a reading plan, once you get through the Bible in a year or whatever you're doing, um, that you do go back and make time to do other types of reading through the scriptures. So one would be perhaps you spend an entire year, if you're on a year plan, if that's the kind of schedule you like, that you only focus on uh, the New Testament. And then maybe the next year you only focus on the first part of the Old Testament or the second part of the Old Testament. Um, And that as you're doing that, uh, that you're able to spend a little more time and perhaps in one sitting you'll um, you'll read through all of Ephesians. And then the next day, you'll read through it all again. But as you go through, you're making some notes about uh, sections, making some summary notes. And as you're reading through, you're identifying, well, who's writing this? Why is he writing this? What's the purpose? What's the occasion? Who's he writing to? What's going on? One of the best ways that I've found um, to be able to, uh, you know, a lot of us have probably said, and I hear it all the time, is, you know, I know... It says somewhere in the scriptures, whatever, I just don't know where it is. Have you said that before? Right? Okay. Well, one of the best ways to be able to uh, to fix that is to be very familiar with specific books of the Bible. So if you read, if you spend a whole week and just read that week, you just read Ephesians over and over and over again, you're going to get a good feel for where things are in the book of Ephesians. Uh, and likewise with other books of the Bible. Now, obviously, you're probably not going to read through Leviticus every day for a week. Um, but we can have a good feel as we break it down and make some summary notes. And I, uh, I think that it makes your uh, reading through some of those more difficult passages a lot more enjoyable because you understand now uh, why things are grouped the way they are. Um, take, for example, the book of Numbers. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of lists of names and everything else in the book of Numbers. Well, if you take the time uh, and read through those and start to section them out like this, you're going to get a much better feel for why that book is even in the Bible. There's a lot of uh, gold to be mined in the book of Numbers. 
but if you're just casually reading through it, you will never see it because <laughs> um, you're just reading names you can't pronounce. So uh, that was just a simple, uh, easy exercise maybe to help you, encourage you as you read to look to doing this sort of thing in your, uh, in your study. Any uh, questions about that? Pretty easy? All right, we'll take out the uh, other sheet, 10 Practical Rules for Biblical Interpretation. Uh, We're going to really focus on this first one tonight. Rule number one, the Bible is to be read like any other book. Now, as we say that, we're, we're not denying the reality that the Bible is very different from other books in some ways, but at the same time, it is very much the same as any of our other reading. So before we jump into the actual rule itself, let's identify, just so we're clear up front, how is it that the Bible is unique from any other writing that we might have? Why is, uh, why is Huckleberry Finn, my favorite, non, uh, my favorite fiction literature, Uh, Why is that different from the Bible other than the fact that it's fiction and the Bible is nonfiction? What makes the Bible unique? Okay. That it is is actually a collection of books, 66 books all put together, uh, approximately 40 different authors. Right. What else? Okay. Yeah. Good. Yep. Uh, John's been reading a great book on this recently. Uh, it's written on three. We see that books of the Bible come from three different continents on the earth. Okay, good. So we have a, a long period of time. The writings themselves uh, uh, span a, a large breadth of time, and they've all come together to be for the uh, the scriptures. Say it. Yep. About, about that. Um, <laughs> yes. has some historical roots to it. <laughs> um, good. What else? There's a major one here. Okay. Good. 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 We're going somewhere here. It's inspired by God. Yeah. Let's read... Two passages to help us here, just to remind us. We'll begin with 2 Timothy 3. If someone gets there, please read verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Okay, great. Thank you. So we have one of the unique elements of Scripture here. Well, actually several unique elements about Scripture that uh, first and foremost, up front, all Scripture is literally breathed out. Is uh, b- The breath of Scripture is given by God. So we have holy men who were carried along by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, we could spend a whole uh, evening talking about exactly what that means, uh, what what we believe is, and what our confession teaches, is what's called uh, plenary verbal inspiration. And by that, what we're saying is that these men were not, uh, 
it was not a mechanical dictation. They weren't sitting down to write and the Holy Spirit overtook them and uh, spoke audibly to where they were just like little robots. They weren't uh, secretaries at the desk listening to a recording of their boss of what to write. Um, but their, uh, their soul, their spirit, their mind was influenced by, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And as they wrote, they were carried along. And so... Um, what they were writing was right and true. They weren't overtaken in the sense of they were out of themselves or they, they weren't right. That's why as we read and we see different authors writing different books, um, they write with different styles, right? The way I write a story is going to be a little bit different than the way you write a story. As we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're all coming from a different perspective and the writing style is very different. They have a different audience. They're a different writer. And they had different experiences in the life of Jesus. So uh, that is one of the unique elements of the Bible. The most important unique element of the Bible. That it is the word of God, the very word of God, breathed out into men who were inspired and carried along by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, that makes it infallible. What does that word mean? Without error. Very simply. It is without error. There is no error in it. When we talk about the Bible being without error, are we talking about the English Standard Version or the New King James Version? What are we, what are we talking about? English Standard Version is close, yes. <laughs> now, we're talking about the original manuscripts, the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts um, that were written, the original writings uh, that we have. Now, again, we could spend a whole lot of time, we, we could teach a whole Sunday school class on how we've come to have the scriptures that we have. Um, but uh, we, we understand that what we have is um, very, very, very close to what the originals have been. And there's, there's been a lot of work throughout history to make sure that um, we are as close as we possibly can be. But when we talk about the infallibility of Scripture, we're talking about the original manuscripts, but we're close enough to that to where we can have absolute trust in what we have as being the Word of God, as close as we can get in, uh, in interpretations of language and everything else. Um, let's look at Second Peter chapter 1. No, I, you know, that was, when there was a lot of, uh, in, in the coming of the English Bible, uh, in the early 1900s into the mid-1900s, when we started um, new translations that were diversions from the King James Version, specifically the 1611 King James Version, um, then there were a lot of accusations of you're distorting the text and everything else. There are people out there today who believe that the King James Version of the Bible is God's inspired English version of the Bible. Therefore, it contains no errors. It is infallible, everything else, which is erroneous. It's silly. And in fact, if it compared with um, the original, as close as we get to the original manuscripts, um, other English versions are more accurate than the King James Version. Um, 
nevertheless, it is a very good translation. Um, so that argument was being made at that time that there was a distinction between inerrancy and infallibility, that there was a distinction to be made between what we have, that it doesn't have error versus it can't have error. We, we do agree that the original manuscripts cannot contain error. Uh, they're breathed out by God. So whatever God says is right and true. Um, so therefore, that would lead to the reality that they do not contain error. Um, so there is a distinction there that some people make. I don't. I've not been convinced that that is a, reason, uh, you know, a reasonable argument to make, but perhaps. I don't know. Maybe you had... Okay, uh, First Peter, uh, excuse me, Second Peter, chapter one. Uh, someone read for us verses uh, sixteen through twenty-one. Okay, thank you. So this is what we were just talking about. Um, Peter gives a little more insight into how the scriptures were written. So we have. Uh, holy men of God carried along by the Holy Spirit. What are they writing about? He's writing specifically about the New Testament text, but what is, what are they writing about? What they saw, right? What they were eyewitness to. Well, Peter's, this is the perfect passage to go to when someone challenges you on the reliability of the Scriptures that the scriptures themselves attest to their reliability, that Peter is saying we are only writing about what we saw, what we experienced. And if you, in the time of his writing, if you don't believe what I'm saying, go ask any of the other eyewitnesses that are around us. There's thousands of them. There were thousands and thousands of people who experienced the life and ministry of Jesus. They were around during these times. And so Peter is putting everything on the line and saying, Look, we're not just writing cleverly devised myths. These aren't things we just sat around and came up with and thought would make a good story. These are things we were eyewitness to, and not just us, but many, many other people. So just go ask them if you don't believe us. Um, so this is a strong argument, particularly, particularly in their day because of the need for eyewitness and everything else in terms of court of law and all that for anything to stand up. So this is a great passage to go to to identify, uh, once again, the inspiration of Scripture and what specifically were the requirements as um, the early church looked at these writings to identify which books were going to be a part of the Bible and which ones weren't. Well, one of the major factors was that they had to be either an apostle of Christ uh, have, having direct interaction with Christ or one of, uh, one of the apostles' associates. Um, so everyone says, well, what about Paul? Well, Paul had a direct encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, much more than any of us ever will, I promise you that. <laughs> um, so uh, this makes the Bible unique. These two passages specifically really draw that out. Unique from any other book in literature um, uh, throughout the history of the world. So that is unique. But how is it that the Bible is the same as other books, as any other book that we might read? How is it the same? Okay, uh, if we're reading something that is a nonfiction that contains historical facts that we're reading, uh, we are reading some kind of history of the world. So uh, there are parts of the scriptures um, that are uh, their historical narrative, we call, and we'll talk about genre later. 
Um, but they're giving us a historical timeline of things that have happened. So we see that similarity with other books. What else? Okay, excellent. We're going to talk a lot about context. You don't... There's, there's certain uh, people who... They want to read the Bible very differently from other books in that I'm just going to open it here and start reading and I'm going to try and apply this without having any idea about what's going on in the rest of the story. So we need to know the context uh, of a verse that we read and seek to apply, but we need to know that in terms of the paragraph it's in, the chapter it's in, the book it's in, and the overall story of the Bible from start to finish. We need to understand context. We're going to spend a lot of time. I'm going to show us, if we have time, a quick uh, video clip that's going to help illustrate that as well. Um, What else? That's a great point. What else makes the Bible like other forms of literature? Okay, good. The various genres of the Bible. So, broad categories of genre. Now, we can narrow each of these down even more. But the broad categories of genre through the Bible. The Bible begins with the first five books are the Pentateuch, which is what? What are we preaching on Sundays? Law, right. The books of the law. So, we have law. We move into historical narrative. So, narrative being the stories uh, that as we read through the Old Testament, it's giving us a historical uh, unfolding of God's redemptive work. Uh, There's wisdom literature, the wisdom books of the Bible. So we have, uh, um, we start with Job will be the first one you come to. Um, The Psalms are really linked with uh, songs and poetry. Uh, There is some wisdom literature in the Psalms, but... Uh, Primarily, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon are considered the wisdom books of the Bible. We have poetry, so all of the Psalms, and then there's elements of poetry in various other books. Uh, Books of prophecy, the major prophets, the minor prophets. The four Gospels, Gospel writing, the Gospels are a different genre because they are all specifically focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. They are a narrow focus on a person in a place and what he was doing amongst a specific people. So Gospels are their own genre. There are letters. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 of them and there's various others. And then a very specific type of literature, only one, really, only one book of the Bible. Um, There are, again, various elements of it spattered throughout, but a book itself, the book of Revelation, is what is called apocalyptic literature. Every single one of these genres has to be read according to their genre. So, let me give you a very easy example. When you read the Psalms and it talks about the waves clapping and the trees singing, um, do we believe that the waves throw up their hands and, and that the trees open up their mouths and start singing a song? No, that's not how we read poetry, right? 
That's not how we go to any other poem and read it. That's not how we listen to music that is poetry. When the Bible says uh, that the eyes of our hearts are open, do we really think our hearts have eyeballs? Uh, No. So when we talk about a literal interpretation of the Scripture, we're talking about a literal interpretation based upon the genre that we are reading. We have to be very clear about that. That's why this is so important. So when we read apocalyptic literature, this is one that gets people crazy. When we read the book of Revelation, when we read apocalyptic literature, we have to understand the genre. There's a lot of imagery. There's a lot of symbolism. We don't read it and take it literal in the sense of, well, it says that a two-headed dragon is going to do this and that, so I'm waiting to see a two-headed dragon. Well, that two-headed dragon symbolizes something. We would read it very much the same as we do things like poetry um, and wisdom literature. So we have to be very careful as we read um, genre, just like we would anything else. I'm not going to read The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn the same as I'm going to read a letter from my wife or a letter from uh, some organization that's trying to get money from me. I'm sure you're getting all those letters now in the mail too. Um, So context is vitally important. Genre is vitally important. These are very much the same as we do with any other kind of literature. What else? Great, exactly. And we'll talk later uh, in the weeks ahead about the, uh, the method of interpretation we use called the grammatical historical method. This is what uh, Russ is referring to, that there is a historical time and place that we can look at and identify and see um, whether or not what we're reading in the Scriptures are true. And time and time and time again... Um, Historical artifacts and archaeological digs are proving that the Bible is absolutely true. Nothing yet in the scriptures uh, historically has been proven false as much as many might try. And in fact, many have become Christians seeking to try. <laughs> absolutely. As far as I'm concerned, if anything is historically proven inaccurate in the Bible, it's over. We're done. We're, what are we doing? We're looking at a Bible and saying, this is absolutely true. This is what I'm basing my life upon, uh, but it's not entirely accurate. Well, because that brings into question everything else. So um, he's absolutely correct. The burden of proof is on us. And that, that ups the ante a little bit when we say, this is the Word of God. It's a very important thing to do, uh, to understand. Um, As we talk about context, I want to get to this because we're about out uh, of time. I want to mention one thing, and then I'm going to show this. It's a very short clip, and then we'll we'll be done. Um, One way, and I I don't suppose that we really have this problem, maybe uh, if we were baby Christians and hadn't really thought, you know, how how to read the Bible. Um, So there's a practice, and uh, I've seen it in um, certain parachurch ministries and things like that. Um, it's named Lucky Dipping. Does anyone know what that is? Okay. Um, it's sort of this mystical uh, 
way of looking at the scriptures. It's, I'm going to pray and ask God to help me understand something or help me to make a decision or whatever else. And then I'm going to open the Bible and put down my finger and read that verse and figure out how that applies to my situation. We call this lucky dipping. Uh, So we're praying for divine guidance, and then we assume we have that divine guidance, and so whatever we read is going to be uh, exactly what we need to do. So the clip we're going to watch in just a minute is going to help us uh, to see how uh, that might not work. Um, (laughs) But when you don't take into mind, yeah, it'd be really easy if we could do that, right? Man, if only. Um, But when we don't take Scripture in terms of context and understanding it, how it is written, why it was written, then uh, we run into a lot of problems. Let me give you an example. One of my favorites, um, who knows Philippians 4.13? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. (laughs) I love that verse in its proper context. Um, So I always want to know if... I went to Las Vegas and I went to a boxing match and uh, two Christians happened to be in the ring that night and they both walked out and their boxing robes had Philippians 4.13 inscribed down the side of the robe and they're up there and they're charged. What are they assuming? I can win this thing because Christ is with me. I got this. I'm going to win. Well, the other guy is saying the same thing and guess what? Someone's losing in the end. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, if it's not a draw, someone someone uh, is uh, is not as loved by Christ, <laughs> apparently. Um, what is the context of that verse? Where is Paul when he writes the book of Philippians? In prison. Why is he in prison? For teaching and preaching the gospel. I'm not fighting in a boxing match because I am uh, because I am uh, being imprisoned or being enslaved because of my uh, my faith and my. Now, if I was put in a boxing ring with Evander Holyfield, it would be by force. But <laughs> and maybe then I might think about claiming that verse in that situation. But we have to understand context. Philippians 4:13 was not written by Paul and intended for athletes to. Uh, to print on their bodies in order that they can prove I'm going to win this sporting event because I'm a Christian and you're not. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> it hasn't worked so far. <laughs> All right, well, let's, uh, let's watch this short clip. Um, this is part of a longer study, so he's going to make reference to some study materials and things that we're not using, um, but I just he, he does a good job in explaining context in a short Thing, so I want to show it. 